Thank you for downloading our podcast. This Christmas season, we consider Luke's testimony of Christ. Luke sets out to write an orderly account so that his friend Theophilus can be certain regarding the things he has been taught. What is Luke fundamentally teaching us about the significance of Christ and Christ's entrance into history? Last time we considered Jesus Christ and his interaction with a woman at the well and how he made explicit to her that we worship God in spirit and in truth, that God is one, God is simple. Uh, He's not a God who's comprised of many mechanical things and no mechanics at all. So it means that God is never tired, he is never worn out. And so as we continue on uh, considering the implications of God being simple and spiritual, we go on to the attributes of God and, and what it means that God is sovereign. One of the things we can think is when we talk about the sovereignty of God, especially Psalm 90 in terms of a new year, we can be tempted to think that having God so majestic and sovereign that it makes him unattainable, right? God's in heaven, God's busy uh, dealing with the creation, and and we're nothing in his sight. So, So why would we even turn to him? Why would we even be encouraged to come to God knowing that he is so sovereign and majestic. And this is where I think Psalm 90 is is so important. Uh, When we look at how Moses reminds us that yes, God is sovereign and he is majestic and and God could strike us dead in in a moment by a mere command without uh, much effort at all, if any. And yet when we hear that, somehow we're encouraged to draw near and to order our lives in light of God being sovereign. So if God is so majestic and sovereign, and God could smite us within a mere second if he so desired, why would we want to come near to him? How can his promise be so assuring for us when we think about who God is and who we are as mere mortals? And so as we look at this, We'll, see, we'll ask the question, is God's majesty really intimidating when we think about it? And sort of a yes, no. Why is God's eternal, or secondly, why is God's eternal nature so encouraging? And so the first point is where we look more at what the Belgic Confession is teaching us regarding the attributes of God. And secondly, we'll be digging more into the psalm and, and what the psalm is teaching us. And so first, seeking to answer the question, is God's majesty intimidating? We think about God's majesty and and the simplicity of God. Remember we said God doesn't need to take a nap. He never falls asleep on the job. Um, He doesn't deteriorate. He doesn't need to eat. God doesn't take lunch breaks, etc. He doesn't need to do these things because he is spirit. He is simple. And so when we look at the attributes of God, we want to say that God is the attributes that he is 100%. But he's not just one attribute. So for instance, we've talked about this before, but you can hear people today say God is love, right? Well, if we look at 1 Corinthians 13, for instance, we can make a case that yes, God is love in the sense that that's the wholeness of who he is. But God's also justice. God's also mercy. God's also the one who carries out his eternal decree of judgment in terms of this justice and mercy, right? So, so we can't just say, well, God is love. We say, well, yeah, he, he is love, but he's also justice. Uh, he's also one who carries out his will perfectly. And so 
we, we have to take the whole picture of God and all of his attributes and not just take one attribute and say, this is who God is. Even though, yes, he is the fullness of love, but we can't just talk about that and miss the reality of his justice. And that's what the Belgic Confession is trying to lay out with the attributes of God. Now, one of the warnings that Bavink gives us, and again, I, I very much appreciate Bavink. I think I've made references to him before. But Bavink talks about how there's a temptation in theology to draw a distinction between the essence of God, meaning the spiritual nature of God and who he is as spirit, and the attributes of God or, or the being of God. And what Bavink says, what this does is it really opens up the, the doorway to polytheism. Now, what that means simply is theism just means gods, poly means many. So what that means is it opens the door to many gods. Uh, so, for instance, when Israel engages in idolatry, they don't say, well, we're just Baal worshipers, right? They just say, well, Baal's one of our gods. So if you talk to a, an Israelite that would claim to be pious, they'd say, well, we, we serve the true God of the Exodus, but we also kind of have some homage to Baal, and we have some homage to some of the other gods and the Asherahs and all these other things. Now, that's a problem, obviously, right? Because there is only one God we are called to worship. And so we don't want to say that there's an essence of God that he can give to the creature so that the creatures can become God-like in the sense that they become like a God-like being. And so Bavink warns and says, you know, there's a temptation among some theologians to do this, and we don't want to do that. Uh, because we really can start blurring the distinction between the creator and the creature. God is God. God is not dependent on us. We are dependent upon God as his creatures. So when we look at this, knowing who we are, an instance where this comes to bear is where we think of John 4, what we saw last week. So when Christ says, I am, Christ is identifying himself as Yahweh. We've talked about the name Yahweh. We'll go through the names of God as well. But Yahweh is just simply the Hebrew verb of being. It just means I am. And so what God is saying in that name is he's saying he's a God who's before creation, the God who is ordering creation right now, allowing it so I can stand up and I have life and I have breath and I have air to breathe and all of us have air to breathe and the lights stay on. All the little details we can take for granted, the great I am is seeing to it that all these things stay in order. And so when Christ says, I am, he is saying he is God. We are not like God in, in that sense. We have a beginning. We have an end. We have a time when we can talk about our genealogy. We can talk about our parents. And there will, unfortunately, unless Christ comes again, there will be a day when we are placed in the ground and we die. That's the reality of what it means to be a human being. And so when we talk about God being God and his essence and his majesty, it does very much put us in a place of humility. We are creatures. He is God. Even the growth that we have made in our Christian life, and I don't want to minimize that. We, we should want to grow. We, we should desire that. But even that growth is in the power of his spirit. Not because God has given us his essence, 
um, making us and imparting us to be God-like beings, but it is God who has given us his Holy Spirit, uniting us to Christ, joining us to him. And so it's actually a, a greater blessing because it's God himself dwelling within us, making us his temples. So when we talk about these attributes of God, as we'll go through this more in the Belgic Confession, one of the distinctions we make as Reformed people, if you look at our systematic theology, that's basically how we divide our doctrines of theology. And when we talk about God, we talk about two different classes of attributes. So we talk about the incommunicable attributes and the communicable attributes. Now, it's really not as complicated as it may sound. Incommunicable, as you can guess, means you can't communicate, right? If it's incommunicable, it means it's not able to communicate. So these are the attributes that are, dis that are purely in God. So we look at the Belgic Confession, we notice how the Belgic calls our attention to these attributes. We have God being incomprehensible, meaning he's distinct, we're not gonna contain him. And so that's one of those things that's difficult for us to understand. The temple contains the wholeness of God, but it doesn't limit God just to the temple, but yet all of God is in the temple. I mean, it's something that we can't fully comprehend, and yet we see how God is distinct from us, how God is eternal, how God works in time and is still outside of time. That's what this is getting at. God is also invisible. God is unchangeable, right? We were created perfect, but we could change. God is infinite. He's everywhere. We, we can't limit him. We can't put him in a box. God is almighty, all-powerful. So those are what the Belgic would list as the incommunicable attributes. They are attributes, descriptions of who God is distinct to God. The communicable attributes are those things that we share with God being in the image of God. So we think of being wise. Now God is the epitome of wisdom, he's a fullness of wisdom, he doesn't grow in wisdom, but yet as creatures, we grow in wisdom, hopefully. Uh, sometimes I wonder, but at least with myself, but we grow in wisdom, right? So as we have more knowledge, we, we learn to apply that knowledge, we interact in more situations, we, we have a, a, a wisdom that we gain knowing uh, what to do that's more honorable to God in some situations than others. Just. Right? So it means as human beings, we can have a concept of justice. God's the, the fullness of justice, but yet as human beings, we have a concept of right and wrong. Good, well, I mean, again, we can say that man has a formal good, outward good. Uh, we can begin to conform to good, but as we were created originally, we were created good. We could change, but we were created good. So that's an attribute where God is a fullness of goodness, but it could be given to us. And so when, when we talk about basically this introduction to the doctrine of God and these sorts of things, I'll keep reviewing them, going into them, uh, and calling attention to them. So I think it's important that we understand these distinctions and, and what our confessions trying to teach us. But going on when we look at Psalm 90. Psalm 90, uh, looking at this again as a start of book four, uh, this is where in another basically continues to confirm to me something I heard in seminary that I didn't entirely know if I believed it or if I was persuaded. But as I continue to, to explore this, I certainly see more and more evidence 
that by the providence of God, the Psalter's not accidental in the four books and how they're arranged. And so you think about book one, you have sort of this celebration of God being God, David being king. Book two, you have Solomon attesting to God being God, Solomon being king, successor to David. Book three, we have Solomon goes apostate. Now we wonder, well, what do we do? Where's our God? How do we live? What, what does this mean? Uh, he's supposed to be the successor of David, but it doesn't seem he's walking as David walked, and, and where do we find our confidence? Book four is where you're coming to grips with the reality that God is king. Book five, then, is how do we live in light of knowing God is king? You know, sort of like what we say in our catechism, uh, living out of gratitude. And so when we look at, at this psalm, Psalm 90, and put this in the context of the Psalter, if your Bibles are still open, I call your attention to Psalm 89, verse 49, where you have a psalmist asking, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? An important question. David was the ideal king, O oh Lord. Yes, he failed. He had some moral failures. But still, we see your promise being with David. We see repentance. We see his heart was renewed unto you. You promised to bring about a successor. A successor is not living up to our expectations. What do we do? Where is our hope? Where is your steadfast love? Where is the surety of, of the confidence? Right? So you have this question put here. Now you have Moses, who's prior to Psalm 89, who's giving the answer. Where you have this prayer of Moses. When we have this, this prayer and we look at what Moses is calling to our attention, what does he say in verse 1? Lord, you are our dwelling place. So right there, Moses is calling to our attention, the Lord is the one who's a majesty. The Lord is the one who is a dwelling place in all generations. So right there in Psalm 90 is answering that very question. The Lord is the one throughout all generations who has been with his people. And so right here we understand who is this God that we worship? Where is our hope? Where is our peace? Where is the Lord's steadfast love? Well, Psalm 90 verse 1 is answering this immediately. In the Lord who has been with all the generations of the earth. Not just to David. Not just to Solomon, not just to the Exodus people, but to all the generations of the earth. So right there, you come to grips with the reality, who is man? Well, if there's generations, what does that tell us? It tells us we're mortal. It says, we're a generation now. We're going to be a generation who's in the past tense. There's going to be a generation that comes after us as the Lord is sovereign. We are mortal. We will die. We will pass away, as has happened before, generations before us. But guess who hasn't passed away? The living God. He has maintained the generations after generations after generations after generations. He is the one to whom in which we dwell and where we find life. And so right here, when, when we ask that question, is God's majesty uh, something that's intimidating? Well, according to verse 1, no. It's assuring, because I know I'm going to die at some point. I'm not going to live forever. What, whatever legacy I, I think I may leave on this earth, as we find in Solomon, is but a breath. 
may last for a generation, may last for two generations, and after that, it's but a breath. I'm forgotten. But the Lord continues. So the hope that I can have as an individual and what we can corporately have is that as we are grounded in the living God, our identity is secured forever. So now getting into this more in detail as we look at this psalm and and think about why is God's eternal nature then so encouraging to know that God is eternal, that God stands beyond us, that God is sovereign over all things. Well, when we think about who God is, we know who God is. We talked about last time, he can't be conquered. He's shown himself being faithful from generation to generation. Think about that history. Conquers Egypt, conquers Babylon, conquers the earthlings that try and make the Tower of Babel to overpower him and lead him around on a little leash. They don't prevail. God's stronger than all of them. This is where we put our hope. The temptation we can have is to think, well, maybe God's aloof, right? So if we go back to Psalm 89, verse 49, where is your steadfast love of old? Where is your faithfulness, you swore to David? See, right there we may say, well, maybe David's encouraging us to challenge God and say, God's aloof, he doesn't care. But what does Psalm 89, verse 49 assume? It assumes that in raising this question, And bringing this complaint against God, that God hears this complaint. This is David honestly coming into the presence of God and saying, Where are you, O Lord? I'm calling out to you. Where are you? We're right there. When you're calling out in this way, you're assuming God hears you. And so his sovereignty and and being distinct from us does not mean that God is aloof or God is absent. The very reality we can pray to him, call out to him, cite this verse, means God very much knows who we are, is aware of our situation, as a God who is still at work and is sovereign enough, powerful enough to bring this about. But as we even go on and we look at Psalm 90, we look at verses 1 and 2 now, and we look at how these verses fit together. Notice in Verse 1, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. So you have you there that I call to your attention. Verse 2, notice how it ends. You are God. So Psalm 90 verses 1 and 2 is being framed with a call for us to profess God is our dwelling place. Why is God our dwelling place? Well, verse 2, you are God. So you can put that together just as one sentence that's framing the psalm or these two verses at least. But I would also argue as sort of the, the thesis or the claim of what the psalm is going to be about. As some commentators say, this is sort of like a meandering, and a, it's just kind of, you wonder what the point is. But hopefully we can see that when you put this in the context, God is our dwelling place, you are God, that we understand what Moses is doing. He's inviting us to think about our position as mere mortals, and think about who God is as a great, majestic sovereign. So the Lord is our dwelling place. So think about this declaration then, in all generations. This means that the promise of God is not just for David. The promise of God is not just for Moses, not just for Abraham, not just for Adam at the exit of Eden. This promise stands because it is grounded in who God is. He has asserted it. He has promised it. 
and it will stand. Notice that in verse 2, when we say, well, how do we know God's powerful enough to do this? Where are you, O Lord? Psalm 89, 49. Where's your steadfast love? Moses is saying, don't you understand who God is? Before the mountains, and you think of the, the mountains being the, the foundation of this creation, the, the very thing that upholds it, right? Mighty things, you're not going to move them in mere moments. They're, they're majestic just in themselves. But even those majestic mountains do not stand on their own. They were formed by the hand of God. That's what Moses is calling to our attention. He forms the earth. He forms the world. He makes the foundation of it all. And before all this, God was. So right here, it's calling to our attention. How do we know God's sovereign? How do we know he's majestic? He can uphold this. Well, he, he made this creation. As he makes this creation, we marvel at its beauty. And again, you, you marvel at, at a fallen world. I mean, this is a cursed creation. I mean, let's, let's be reminded of this reality. It's a cursed creation. And we can still marvel at its beauty and how gorgeous it is. And so I certainly do wonder what the glorified creation is going to look like. But nevertheless, it's grounded in God. He has done this. So because God has upheld the creation, that's, that's a proof that God is faithful, God continues to maintain this world, so he maintains his promise in verse 1, throughout all generations. It's the assurance that in terms of who he is, God has done this. And so with the Lord making these mountains and bringing forth this creation, an echo here might be to Genesis 2 verse 4, uh, where Moses says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth, right? So this would tie verse 1 and verse 2 together. Because it's not only the generations of humanity who have lived, but you think of the genealogy of this creation as grounded in God. So this creation, the general preservation of this world is grounded in God's majesty. Our covenantal promises are grounded in God's majesty. The world has continued to be, so generations continue to come and go, being upheld by the hand of God. So superficially, we can say, well, that's pessimistic. Until you understand the deeper reality of how God is the one who is upholding everything. He maintains uh, the generations after generations after generations and, and fulfills those covenantal promises. Going on then, verses 3 through 11, where we take the next chunk of this psalm. Now this is something where uh, we look at this and, and Moses is now recalling to us this creation isn't the most ideal. Notice verse 3, citing to us the, the very curse of creation that the Lord said in Genesis 3 and, and the promise that was made in Genesis 2 if they ate of the tree, that you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. And so right here is that call to see our created reality. We are basically mud pies that God has breathed life into. The curse of creation, we will return to the reality of the dirt. Adam, from the dust, from the dirt. That's who we are. So now it's this understanding of who we are as, as mere mortals. Psalm 89 Verse 49, where's your steadfast love, your faithfulness of David? Moses called to our attention. Do we deserve it? 
Do we deserve the affection of God? Not really. We're mere mortals deserving death. Going on, verse 4. Here we may think that when we can go back in history, we can do all these great things of who we are and we're so majestic that the Lord now is put in perspective. What what we think is a long time is really nothing. It's a blip on the radar for God. And so again, we're, we're overwhelmed by his majesty. What, what we think of a day maybe being a long time is really not that long. You know, a thousand years in the sight of God is nothing. It's but yesterday, you know, it, it's a memory, it's a past. I, I mean, think about that, a thousand years, that's several, several generations that have come and gone. And yet this is just a blip on the radar to the Lord going on. As the Lord reminds us of our place in verses 5 and 6. So you notice especially, and we can see this in the summer here in Montana, uh, where you have the, the dew that comes up in the morning. And so the grass greens up and it, it looks lively, it looks good. And then as the sun starts beating on it a little bit and as the dew dries up, uh, we see that the grass isn't so uh, lively anymore. It doesn't look so good. And it goes through a series of times like this. And if it doesn't have water from an outside source, it's going to turn brown and, and fade away. And that's what it's reminding us of who we are. We are like this as a flood. And again, I thought maybe this was like a reference to uh, the flood of Noah and what's going on and, and the temptation to see that. But it's actually more just calling attention as I look at this again, uh, or investigate it again, just to the Lord who continues to basically bring about this creation. He brings the water, he brings renewal, and then he's the one that brings about the death, the different seasons, the different times in life that do not endure uh, forever. Now we go on, we think about the reality of man being like this dew in the morning, We go on, we look more at verses 7 through 11. We're the ones where the Lord can smite us. The Lord can end our lives. We look at verse 7. I mean, think about the reality of this. Where we can look at the Lord's anger. You know, you think of Moses, you think of Israel in the wilderness. How the Lord shows his wrath, shows his might in different times. You think about the the bronze serpents where Israel's bit by uh, snakes. And then they look at the bronze serpent and they have life. And you can think of these examples and you can think, my goodness, how the Lord can just smite his people. But when you set this up in, in terms of this, we can say, but think about who God is. If we really think about our, our position before him as mere mud pies, is it really that much of an effort for the Lord to preserve our lives and then remove our lives? It's really not that big of a deal for him. I mean, he could smite us at a mere command. The Lord can really destroy us if he desires to. Notice that in verse 8, something that's humbling. As we have this reminder of our iniquities being brought before him. There's nothing that's secret. This is one of the things where I think it's so important when we look at verse 8 that we know who Christ is. And that we, we really have confidence that he's a redeemer. He really has taken away our sins. And it's best to come before the Lord with full authenticity, confessing who we are. We're not going to hide anything from him. He knows who we are. He knows us better than we know ourselves. There's nothing we're going to hold secret from him. 
And when we come into his presence, he knows what's going on. He sees it. Going on then, verses 9 and 10. Notice that this sounds rather pessimistic. When you look at verse 9, our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. So it's basically expressing that all of our days, we, we just kind of endure them. We kind of put up with them. That's what verse 9 is getting at. It's not very happy. But Moses is calling to our attention the nature of the curse. Verse 10, the years of our life are 70. So no matter how hard we work, no matter how hard we exert ourselves, we're still going to die. And he's saying maybe if we really exert ourselves, we might get 10 more years out of it. And so he's saying, do you really want all this toil and trouble? Right? Rather pessimistic. Especially when you think about this in New Year's, looking at a New Year's Day, and you're thinking, boy, it's a new year ahead of us. We, we kind of want to move ahead and, and find some hope. And so we, we wonder, what, what is Moses trying to teach us? That maybe we can eke out 80. Maybe we can understand the reality of it. But in verse 11, he invites us to do something. Consider the power of his anger. Consider his wrath. And we do this so that we grow in reverence of God right? When we understand what God could fundamentally do to us, what we fundamentally deserve, we truly grow in reverence and awe of the living God. So again, his sovereignty sounds kind of intimidating here, something that certainly does make us a, a little scared of who he is. But then notice verse 12, and this is something I think in the new year that, that becomes so important. Teach us so right here, Moses is giving a, an explicit prayer to God. Teach us that, Lord, we want your instruction. And what does he want the Lord to instruct us to do? To number our days under the sun. Now, we heard that these days are just but a sigh. They're just a vapor. They're just something that it sounds almost miserable. But verse 12 is saying, but Lord... May we have a clear view of this age. So if you take this in light of Ecclesiastes being uh, Solomon's, and again, I take Ecclesiastes as Solomon's deathbed confession. I hope I'm right on this uh, because I'd love to see Solomon in glory. But you think of Ecclesiastes as Solomon's deathbed confession. This is what I've learned in my life of having all the wisdom, squandered it on a bunch of foolish stuff, now I've learned wisdom, right? That's kind of how I take Ecclesiastes. You pursue this life, you try and find meaning in this age alone. It's but a vapor. There's nothing hopeful, there's nothing lasting, there's nothing enduring, there's nothing that's going to go beyond this world, and it's a meaningless, vain existence. But when we number our days, and we look to the God who gives life, and we look to the sovereign Lord, and we start ordering our lives in light of him, what, what happens? Verse 12, why do we number our days that we can gain the heart of wisdom? In other words, that we see the true meaning of life. True meaning of life and the fullness of life in terms of wisdom is living in the fear of God, the reverence of God, wanting to honor him, wanting to order our lives, living out a redemptive purpose in him. And so that's what Moses is saying, teach us that we learn our mortality and that we learn that life is only found in the true God of heaven 
And then as we learn this orientation in this life, it's not a meaningless existence. There is a purpose that as we live before the face of God, this is our purpose to gain this wisdom of the living God. Notice then, as we walk through this, we skip down to verse 17. And we think about the implications of this. That here we have the work of our hands being established. And as we establish the work of our hands, how? In the wisdom of God. Then actually the, the tasks that we do that are set upon us by the wisdom of God, seeing these mundane tasks like we talked about this morning, there's a purpose now. Going on, skipping up to verse 16. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. In other words, now here's that reminder. That's within history in the context of the living God, going back to verse 1 of the generations, that as we teach this to our children, as they orient themselves in light of the Lord's redemptive purpose, seeking to live for God, there's a purpose to life. It's not meaningless. It's not absurd. It's not just a sigh. It's not something that's just miserable. If we try and find life and meaning only under the sun, it is a sigh. It is miserable. It is horrible but to live it in the Lord knowing his redemptive mercy there's life verse 15 the reminder of this age make us glad think about this request here in verse 15 make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil what a strange request on a superficial level isn't it I mean basically we're saying yeah well as there's all this misery make us happy but what this is helping us to understand is basically along the lines of Psalm 118, verse 24. So basically, we can have two views of life. We can view it just as the common curse in misery and say, oh, it's just misery, it's a sigh, it's just suffering, there's no hope, there's no purpose and meaning. I guess I'll just get out of bed and I'll try and do another day. Right? That's one way we can look at it. But when you look at what... Moses is saying in verse 15, it's along the lines of Psalm 118, I believe verse 24. You know, this is a day that the Lord has made, let us rejoice and be glad in it. That's what he's getting at in verse 15. As we see the affliction, as we see the horror, it's on the one hand a reminder, this age is not our full identity. Our identity is in the living God. And so as we look at this world, we can on the one hand be very thankful this is not our ultimate story. But on the other hand, we can actually find joy in the Lord in the midst of this suffering. In the midst of this age. We can actually rejoice knowing that God is our God. So Psalm 89 verse 49, where is your steadfast love? Moses is saying, teach us. Teach us that we have this new orientation, that we can truly rejoice in knowing we are your people. Our life is not a life of, of just misery. But it gets even more explicit in verse 14. So we take verse, uh, we take verse 12 and 14 together, teaching us to number our days. Verse 14 again, making it more explicit. Then in the morning, we're satisfied with his steadfast love that we may be glad in all of our days, which is what we were reading into verse 15 for a reason. 
Because verse 14 is laying out the logic of verse 15, or 15's building on the logic of verse 14. So Moses is not contradicting the common curse in verse 15. Common curse is there. But in verse 14, he's saying, but even as we experience the common curse, and again, you think of Moses being in the wilderness, only seeing the promised land from Mount Nebo, not entering the land. Moses is speaking from a, a, a true perspective as a, of a wilderness sojourner. Yeah, we can taste the dust in the wilderness. We can taste the bitterness of the water. We can taste the testing. We can taste the evil days. But what do we know? That the Lord's steadfast love is at work. This is where the morning becomes something that's so significant. Because you think of the night receiving the bad news, receiving the horrible news, having a restless evening maybe, not really knowing what the morning's going to bring. But what does the morning bring? The refreshment of the Lord's steadfast love. A new perspective as the Lord teaches us to number our days. And so when we look at this psalm and we ask this question, you know, is this just something where we think about God's majesty and his sovereignty being so removed from us that, that there's no hope. Because after all, God can just smite us dead. We, we taste a common curse. What's the point of this life? Well, Moses, as he's being used to answer Psalm 89, he's being honest. And he's saying, I'm not saying every day under the sun is going to be this dream. And I'm not saying every day under the sun is going to be this, this day of joy and this day of festivity. He's saying we are under the curse. We taste the curse. We experience the curse. We know that we, like the other generations before us, we're going to pass on. And there's going to be a new generation who will come. So Moses is saying, I fully grant that. That's true. But Moses is saying in the midst of this curse, and again, Moses, wilderness wanderer, Moses, man, stands before the burning bush and says, I don't want to go to Pharaoh. The guy's going to kill me. I want to stay away from Pharaoh. I just want to stay in the wilderness, tend to sheep, and call it a day. But as he goes into Pharaoh, doubting whether or not God can protect him, what does he learn? In the morning, there is a refreshment of the Lord's steadfast love. In the morning, there is a refreshment in knowing that, yes, God is sovereign. And as God is sovereign, and as his creation moves to its purpose, and as his curse is implemented, and as he brings us about, there is also the hope. The Lord raises up his generations. The Lord manifests his steadfast love. And so we take the prayer of Moses upon our lips as we start a new year. We think about the Lord teaching us to number our days. It's not to depress us. But it's to remind us that as we live out our days before the face of God, as a sovereign Lord who is present with his people, he has a purpose for his redeemed. And he has a purpose for this creation. And even in the midst of suffering, the midst of turmoil, in the midst of unrest, in the midst of the sigh of living under the sun, as we sojourn through this age, we can rejoice in the Lord's purpose. We know that as we do the mundane tasks, these are tasks that the Lord has set before us to do. 
And so it's assuring then because the Lord fulfills his promises. And he's reminding us, not every day is going to naturally be great. Not every day is something that's going to bring about this ultimate joyfulness. But we did this. We wanted the curse. But God, by his sovereign mercy, has overcome it. And so in the midst of the common curse, as we sojourn under the sun, we know that as we are redeemed in Christ, we look above this age. We look above the sun. We heed the wisdom of Solomon on his deathbed. That life and joy is found in the service of the living God. Knowing that he is redeemed, When we are tempted to ask, Psalm 89, verse 49, where is your steadfast love? Where is your faithfulness? We turn to Psalm 90. Oh, yes, Lord, teach us to number our days. Teach us to walk in your wisdom. Teach us to be reminded that you are sovereign. Teach us to remember that you are the God who brings about your redemptive purpose. Teach us to see the bigger scope of this world. Teach us to rejoice in knowing that each day you have made and have set before us. Let us then have the bigger perspective of life that Psalm 90 is encouraging us to see. That even in the midst of our turmoil, we know that as there is a new day, there is a renewed manifestation of God's steadfast love and mercy. And this promise will continue to have its power and its effect because God is sovereign and he is majestic and he is serious and committed to his redemption as he has done for generations and will continue to do for generations. Let us find our life and wisdom in him and in him alone. Amen. Thank you for listening to our sermon. We hope and pray that our sermons encourage you as you sojourn on your Christian walk. If you have any questions about our church, please contact our pastor through our webpage, urcbelgrade.com. That is urcbelgrade.com. We also have many sermon series archived and available for download on our website, urcbelgrade.com. Most of all, We would love to see you join us in our Christian sojourn by being part of our church. Until we meet again, may the Lord's blessing and peace be upon you.